If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark chapter 8. I'll give you a few moments to get there. Um, in case you're new with us, we've been working our way through Mark. Uh, we're going to take a break in a couple weeks and start uh, our sermon series uh, in the Psalms for the summer. So we're going to finish up a couple more chapters, and then uh, we'll take a break for the summer, and we, we'll be back in Mark in the fall. This is God's Word. Mark 8, 1 through 21. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now for three days, and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from very far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a, fall, a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And Jesus sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one, with, with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, being aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full were broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not understand yet? Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, uh, we do bow before you and pray your blessings upon your word. Father, uh, the man standing in this pulpit is very much aware of your holiness. And we cannot see the holiness of God and not see our sinfulness and our unholiness. And so, Father, I pray and thank you for the blood of Christ, which blots out our iniquity as far as the east is from the west. Father, I thank you that that is true for me and it's true for all of your people. I pray now that your spirit will be at work and be in our midst and be our teacher. I ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. 
John Currit uh, was one of my professors at RTS, and in his commentary on Genesis, he writes, from the opening chapters of Genesis, we learn that only humans have been endowed with the status of royalty in and over the created order. Mankind's being made in God's image is not merely a matter of character, but one of activity and function. Man is to imitate God in what he does. We have been commissioned to reproduce God's own activity in creation. John Stott, writing about Genesis, says very similar words. God put the man he made into the garden he planted in order that the man would work and take care of it. Thus, God deliberately humbled himself to need Adam's cooperation. Of course, he could have done all the work himself. After all, he created the garden. So presumably, he could have managed it too, but he chose not to. The divine chose to partner with humans. I want us to think about that idea this morning. The divine chooses to partner with humans. We're at a very important miracle in this passage, and it's unlike many of the miracles that we've encountered in Mark before this. If you were with us, you remember when Jesus uh, healed the man with leprosy, he did that alone. He didn't need the disciples' help. He didn't solicit their input. He did it alone. When he quieted the storm, not once, but twice, he didn't ask the disciples to help. His words did it alone. When the man was leprous, he healed him alone. When the man was a paralytic, he did it alone. When the woman had the issue of blood, she did not touch the disciples' garments. She, touches, she touched Jesus' garments, and by touching him and believing, she was healed. That when you read Mark's gospel, uh, you're, you're going to see over and over and over again that Jesus is doing all types of miracles alone. The man who was uh, mute and deaf, who couldn't speak, that we talked about a few weeks ago, Jesus pulled him aside alone and healed him by touching him and talking to him. That the woman whose daughter was possessed by a demon who was in Tyre and Sidon, Jesus simply spoke to the woman way over there, and that woman's daughter was healed. He did not involve the disciples there. This miracle is different. It's different because I think Jesus wants his followers to join into his work. Think about that. He doesn't need them to do it. He doesn't need them to participate at all. This is God being vulnerable. This is God Almighty inviting his disciples. I'm going to do this miracle, but I want you to do it with me. I want you to be here with me. Enter into what I am doing. Do you think about that when you look in the mirror every day? That you're looking at someone loved by God redeemed by God, and also called by God to help him serve and care for others. I'm not diminishing the fact that Jesus does this miracle alone. I'm not diminishing the fact that he goes on a cross alone, but we're starting to see in Mark that his plan for saving and reaching the world, it involves people 
who looked just like you and me. And you start to get a glimpse of it. Remember when Jesus sent his disciples out? He had had all authority over demons. He healed people, raised them from the dead. And earlier in Mark, you know what he did? He actually commissioned them to go out two by two and do the same thing. In the next chapter, it's a, a, a little boy. He's possessed by demon, a demon. And the people bring the boy not to Jesus. They bring the boy to the disciples. And the disciples can't cast out the demon. And then Jesus has to say, these kind only come out by fasting and prayer. But did you catch what's happening? Jesus actually wants them, the disciples, to continue what I started. I'm going to go on a cross and I'm going to go and die and go into the ground. And I'm going to be raised from the dead and I'm going to go to the right hand of the Father. And guess who I am commissioning? You and me. The divine wants to partner with humans. Now, the first thing I want us to think about this text is the divine opportunity that the disciples missed. That's the first point. The divine opportunity that they missed. Some of you, you might know what I mean when I say divine opportunity. The first time I heard about it, I was a fairly new Christian and I enrolled in an evangelism training class at my church. And so we would go to like the eight o'clock service and then we would have evangelism training during the Sunday school hour. And then during the 11 o'clock service, we would go knock on doors, door to door. And then we would debrief later that evening at the, ev at the evening service. And then we would pray over people. And my instructor always talked about pray this week for divine appointments. And I'm like, brother, what's a divine appointment? What are you talking about? And simply put, it was those moments when it just felt like everything was lining up where you've been trained to share your faith, right? And you have a desire to, and somebody so just happens to be in the same room with you who wants to hear about the faith, and you have the goods, you have the business, right? You know how to communicate the faith, and it's matched with God's providence that somehow we're in the same room at the same time. You're seeking Jesus. I'm ready to share Jesus with you. It's a divine appointment, right? And the guy would always say, pray for him. Pray him like, what do you mean pray for him? You mean that God can can put you and me in the same room and you have a flat tire and I'm getting my oil changed and somehow we both can be at Walmart at the same time and I'm reading my Bible and you ask me, what are you reading? And you, you're weeping because your husband just left you and you want to know the truth? And God is like, yep, I put you right in Walmart for this moment right now so that when she looks at you, she wants to hear the gospel. And I'm telling you, when they said that, it was absolutely nuts. Like my fraternity brothers was calling me out of the blue. Yo, I heard you. A, I heard you a Christian now. Can you talk to me about Jesus? And I'm like, what? Like, God, you're really that big, right? I'm on the plane going to see my wife, right? And I'm going to Tallahassee to see her. And there just so happened to be a lady sitting right next door to me on the same plane going to see her fiance who is not a Christian. And so I'm on the plane reading my Bible, and she asked me about Jesus. I share the gospel with the girl on the plane, and she becomes converted. 
and she found me on Facebook recently, and she sent me a message. I'm just telling you that I am still following Jesus. It's a divine appointment. It's when this big God that we believe in starts to orchestrate things so that we're in the right place at the right time with the right goods to come alongside of him as he serves and cares for humans. That's exactly what's going on in our passage. The disciples are in the right place at the right time with the right goods to be a blessing to the crowd who's hungry. What are you talking about, Pastor L? Look, there are two different miraculous feedings in Mark's gospel. You get the one in chapter 8. If you turn back to Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000. And you turn to Mark chapter 8, now it's 4,000. Some of y'all are like, come on, man, that, that, somebody just, that's a copying error. No, it's not. First of all, the numbers are different. Second of all, we think that Jesus is in two different places. In the earlier chapter of Mark, we think he's in Jewish territory. Right here in chapter 8, guess where he is? He's in Gentile territory. So they're different. What they have left over is different. And where they get the bread from is different. In the Mark chapter 6 passage, and you got to look at John to see this, guess where Jesus got the bread from? A little boy. The disciples went and searched the crowd and found what they could get. A little boy gave them their bread, and they brought the bread from the little boy back to Jesus, and Jesus blesses it. Now, read our passage and read it really slowly. Notice what Jesus says in verse 5. He asks them, the disciples, how many loaves do you have? And they said seven. And then Jesus directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them back to who? The disciples so that they could set before the people. And they, the disciples, set the food before the people. And the disciples had a few small fish. And Jesus blessed that. And he said that these should also be set before them. And you get the image? Where did the bread come from? This bread came from the disciples. They had the seven loaves and the seven fish. And the crowd needed it. Who is Jesus talking to in our passage? In verse 2, he called the disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Now, put it all together. This crowd, they're not trying to hit a lick on Jesus. They are not out to get a handout. They are with him, not one, not two, but three days. They are so far away from home that if they try to go home to get food, Jesus himself says, I'm God, and they're not going to make it. Now, here's the dilemma in the passage. I think the statement that Jesus makes in verse, verses 2 and 3, you could interpret this as a statement of fact. Now, what's the statement of fact? Jesus is just telling them how he's feeling. Or, and I think this is how you have to translate this, 
You could interpret it as a statement, a, a leading statement. And what do you mean by a leading statement, Pastor L? I mean a statement that is made to elicit a response. Now, in my house, we do it all the time. If I got my back to the kitchen and I hear somebody around the kitchen and I want some water, I might make the statement of fact, who is that in the kitchen? Now, I'm not trying to know who in the kitchen because I can narrow it down between one of three people, right? But if you're in my kitchen and I ask you that, then you know, all right, Dad, what do you want, right? <laughs> or better yet, we got the little thermostat that I keep on 69. And if I'm sitting with my wife on the couch watching TV, my wife might make the statement, Bay, I'm cold. Right? Now, when she says, Bay, I'm cold, guess what? She's not just trying to tell me that she's cold. It's a leading statement. She either wants me to get up and go get her some cover or an Afghan or something, or she wants me to get up and turn the thermostat up. You get it? You get it. I see you with me, right? <laughs> Look, y'all, when Jesus makes the statement to this crowd, to, to his disciples, I have compassion on the crowd because they're going to die if they don't eat. Do you think he's just letting them know how he feels? Or do you think him, knowing they have bread, knowing he just fed the 5,000, do you actually think it's a leading statement? It's a leading statement. You know what he wants them to say? Master, you just did this two chapters ago. You just had 5,000 people who didn't have enough food, and you took the little food from the little boy, and you blessed it, and you fed everybody. You did it for the Jews in their, in their territory. Surely your power travels with you. Like if y'all watching the NBA playoffs, the big thing is does your game travel? I get that you can win on home court, but can you pack your game up in a bag and take it down to Houston and beat them on Houston's court? Does your game travel with you? Here is what Jesus is proving to the disciples. He got game and his game travels with him. He says, you put me on the sea, I can calm the sea. You take me over into Jewish territory, I got power there. You take me over into Gentile territory, I got power over there too. And so what Jesus wants to hear from his disciples is, Jesus, you've done it before, do it again. And guess what? We got seven loaves and we lay it at your feet, master. And can now you take these seven loaves and can you bless it and multiply and feed the masses just like you did two chapters ago? That's the response he's looking for. Now read what response he gets in verse 4. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? You see the divine opportunity? They got the food. They've been rolling with him. He knocks and nobody is home. It's just like going right over their heads. And we kind of laugh, <laughs> but isn't that like a picture of us? I mean, how many times have you in the past seen God's faithfulness? And this opportunity knocks for you to recall what he did back there, 
to recall his heart, to recall his power, to recall his mercy and abundant grace, to recall these things. And when opportunity knocks for you to believe in that moment and then to surrender what you have in that moment for the good of those who need it, it's just like the disciples. Lord, you're not going to use little old me. What what I'm going to say? And see, sometimes what God wants is not your bread. Sometimes he wants your time. Sometimes he wants your ear. I, look, brother, I just want you to give me your ear for 10 extra minutes so that you can sit with somebody in their sorrow. You can't give me that? I'll tell you one example of many, right, when I blow it. This time of year is always kind of hard, or it was hard, because when you do campus ministry, this is the time of year where you're saying goodbye to your seniors. You're just saying goodbye. And that might not seem like a big deal if you're in a church and you've been here for 15 years and you kind of assume that I'm going to come every Sunday or every other Sunday or however often you come. That might not be a big deal to you, but I want you to think about a campus pastor. The average student is with you three to five years and they're gone. And you pour into someone for three to five years and they're gone and you worry. Will you provide new student leaders? What's going to happen next year? Look at all these people that are graduating and leaving, and I'm stuck right here. And see, I had it a little worse at Jackson State, because if you go to Ole Miss or Mississippi State or any other RUF, it's like this is the model in the PCA, right? We have children. Our children go to PCA churches, and through involvement in the PCA, you go to RYM, and then you start to hear about RUF, and so you show up to college. Where is RUF, right? (laughs) Never happened at Jackson State. One time, and it was Virginia LaValle, who, you know Virginia, right? Who was a PCA kid who grew up in Providence, who pushed against the grain and found herself at Jackson State, she showed up, where you at? I'm looking for you. Outside of that, no one. And so now, now put this together. Here's what this means. This means that I'm supposed to, in that moment when they're leaving, I'm supposed to be so happy for you. And I'm supposed to take my theology of the church and, and my doctrine, right, that God is sovereign. And I'm supposed to know all of this and call that to remembrance. But I'm telling you, I failed. I failed so bad, y'all, that I was in a cardiologist. I had to go see a cardiologist. I couldn't sleep. My heart was fluttering. It was skipping beats. I was a, an absolute mess. I had to wear this monitor for two weeks so the dude could just monitor my heart rate. I had to take my shirt off and run on a treadmill and be hooked up to see my heart. It got so bad. And finally, the guy who, who goes to first prayers, he said, brother, I'm just going to tell you what I see. Your heart is healthy. This is stress, anxiety, depression. You need to go to sleep. You need to stop drinking so much coffee. You need to take better care of your body, and you need to trust Jesus. The moment call for me to recall God's faithfulness, year after year after year, and when I was in my unhealthy state, I was not good for my students because I could not rejoice with them. And I was not good at home because I was frantic. And I was not good for ministry partners who trusted 
that surely you're going to believe that God will build the group and not you. Been there before? This is the divine opportunity that they missed to partner with Jesus, to remember his faithfulness, to lay what they had at his feet and say, Master, bless it, use it for their good. Now, my question is the second point. What's the reason behind their failure? Like, why? Like, Because on, on the surface, it's like, come on, man. Y'all just saw him raise a dead person. This brother done walked on water. He done quieted a storm. I mean, like, he just, I, part of me is like mentally, how can you not remember unless the remembering God is after is not just recalling certain events. Maybe the memory that God is after is when we can recall his faithfulness in the past, and it's not just a blip in the history timeline, but it's a blip that kind of reshapes how we think and live in the present. That's the memory God is after. It's not just telling me what he did, right? It's what you did is meaningful and impactful now. Now, this is a really, I won't say confusing, but it is kind of a really, all right. So I, I think the key to interpreting this passage, one, is to keep it in its context. So I think verses 1 through 21 are, are part of a unit. And here is the unit. Who've been to Stamp Burgers, right? Stamps? Cool owls? All right. So I want you to think about this section that we're in in Mark like a hamburger, right? Like a stamp super burger, right? I see some of y'all saying, like, no, that's heart attack, right? It's cool, right? <laughs> <laughs> Go back to the cardiologist. <laughs> but think about a hamburger, right? You have, you have bread, and then you have meat, and then you have bread again. Now, a hamburger is really best enjoyed when you eat all three parts together, that somehow that perfect balance between the bread and the meat and the cheese, that it just goes together. Now, if you're like low carb and you kind of throw all the bread off and put it on a salad, this illustration means nothing to you, right? <laughs> but for those of us who like good hamburgers, look, here's what Mark does very, very often in the gospel. He puts together these Markin sandwiches. And here's a Markin sandwich. You kind of start with a thing, and then there's kind of this intrusion, or there's this interruption. And then somehow the theme is picked up back again. And the way to interpret Mark when you get to those sections is to let the whole shape how we understand it. And most of the time, the meaning is hitting in the middle. It's the meat. The meat is helping to shape how we understand. And what's also true is what's happening at the bottom is always related to what's happening at the top. Here's a sandwich, and I'll show it to you. The first piece of bread is, is verses 1 through 10. It's the miraculous feeding, right? You see bread and bread that Jesus multiplies. Then you get the meat, and it's right there in verses 11 through 13, and that's when the Pharisees show up. And then to show you that it's connected, notice what Jesus says to the disciples down there in the bottom piece of bread, right there in verse 15. He cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And notice how verse 14 begins, now they forgot to bring bread. You see what's happening? 
verses 1 through 10. It's the top piece of the bread. Verses 11 through 13, that's the meat. And the bottom piece of bread is verses 14 through 21. So here's what it means. It means to understand what's going on with the disciples. We actually got to understand what's happening with the Pharisees. And what did the Pharisees do in this passage? It actually says they came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him another sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And Jesus left them, got into the boat and went to the other side. So what what's going on with the Pharisees? Because he compares his disciples down in verse 15. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. So the question is, what is up with the Pharisees? Here's what's up. This is not their first time coming to try to check Jesus. They've been coming from Jerusalem all in Mark's gospel to check him, to set him up. How can they remember they were following him on the on the Sabbath day? They're following Jesus and his disciples through the grain field. Then they follow Jesus and his disciples right into the synagogue. And that's where they watch Jesus heal a man on the Sabbath day. And they say, Jesus, how can you heal this man on the Sabbath? Right? When they see Jesus casting out demons and doing all kind of stuff, they say, Jesus, by what power and authority do you do this? That power is from Satan. Jesus, why do your disciples not wash their hands? They are all over Jesus. And up until this point, guess what Jesus' posture is towards them? Come on, little babies. I'll reason with you. The Sabbath was not made for man. Man was made. No, the man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. Did you not read about David when he and his men went and ate the showbread? All along, Jesus is both doing signs and he's explaining. And here's the thing. It wasn't a problem of them seeing it. And it was not a problem with them hearing it. They were even engaging it. They get to the point now where Jesus is just like, come on, bro. How many times are we going to do this? We didn't did this over and over and over and over again, and you still want to argue with me? What about Herod? Right before Herod had John the Baptist beheaded, you know what Mark says? Herod heard all that Jesus was doing. So what is Jesus saying to his disciples? He's saying, be careful. Be very careful. They see me. They see my work, and I've engaged them over and over and over again, but their seeing is not moving them to believe, and that's what I want you to be careful of. You've seen my work, and you're forgetful. That's why it says they forgot the bread, and notice what Jesus has to say to them right down there uh, in, in verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And so what's going on here, what's happening is they're forgetting to remember. And guess what? It shows itself in bread number one and bread number two. And so when Jesus asks them that leading statement, I have compassion, they'll die if I send them away. He wants them to say, here's our bread. And you know what they respond with? How can one feed? They're forgetting. And guess what? When you get to the bottom, 
When they get into the boat, notice what Mark says, they forgot their bread, and now they only had one loaf with them, and he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Notice in verse 16, and they begin discussing with one another, and I think we should translate that discussing with debating one another. So now they're debating with one another over why they have no bread, and here's the issue. Why does it matter if you got one loaf of bread when you got the bread of life in the boat with you? You know what I'm saying? Like, really, we're going to argue over who forgot the bread and we got one piece of bread and he just took your bread that you gave him and fed thousands. And so here's the thing. You're remembering what you're supposed to forget. You should be forgetting about debating right now. You should be basking in my glory. You're forgetting. You're forgetting who I am, my heart towards you. Do you think I'm going to go feed these 4,000 and these 5,000 and not feed y'all? Y'all my road dogs. I'm going to make sure y'all eat. We all going to eat. Ain't none of y'all going to starve, right? And yet, they're forgetting. Now, here's the question. Could they recall what he did? Of course they could recall it. But he is not after just recalling what happened. I want you, when you start to argue in the boat and get frantic about having one loaf, what you're supposed to say is our master loves us. He's done it before. He'll do it again. So what? Who left the loaves? We got Jesus and we with him and we good. Now, the question is, how can they forget? Notice what Jesus says. Are your hearts hardened? A few weeks ago, we talked about unbridled fear that surfaces. And when we don't believe that he's good and in control, then what's going on beneath it is my heart is hardened towards his faithfulness and his goodness. And it's the same thing here. Hardness of heart is manifesting itself in spiritual amnesia. And so when we miss the divine opportunities, guess what? It's never a capacity issue. It's never a hand issue. It's never a mind issue. It's always a heart issue. And so the better question to ask ourselves when divine opportunities surface is not, right? Why'd you do that? How'd you, how'd you blow that? The better question is, what's going on right here? That I don't believe that God is compassionate and able and trustworthy and faithful. What's going on here? Which I think makes way for the last point. The reason behind their fail, failure is hardness of heart, which shows itself in forgetfulness. What's needed here? What's the solution? Is we need a greater miracle that he has given. We need a greater miracle. Did you notice there were two scenes on the sea and both times they failed? Did you notice there were two feedings 4,000 and 5,000, and both times they fail. You think Mark is up to something? You think Mark is actually saying the real miracle needed 
to make us by faith see the other miracles as they are intended is the miracle of the new heart. You walk on water, if their heart isn't changed, it don't matter. You see him be faithful, if your heart isn't changed, you, it won't register. And so I think what Mark is doing, he's preparing the disciples and us not for the miracles that happen around Jesus and around them. There's a greater miracle that Mark is saying, it has to happen in you. And when that miracle happens, the scales are off. And here is the good news in the passage. Ezekiel, writing 600 years before, did not write it once, but he wrote it twice. In Ezekiel 11 and in Ezekiel 36. And you know what Ezekiel says? From God, I will remove that hardened heart. And I will give them a heart of flesh. And they will walk in my statutes. And they will keep my rules and they will obey them. The disciples are forgetting what they should remember. And they're remembering what they should forget. And this is the essence of the unredeemed heart. It can't serve God. It can't remember. It is selfish. It is forgetful. It is dismissive. And it is hard. And so the father says, I will fix that. I want you to partner with me in my work, but in order for you to partner with me and to give me your bread and to give me your ears and to give me your minds, you know what I need first? I need your heart. And God says, I will replace your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And when that spiritual surgery happens, guess what? We will be memorable people. And so you see it in the next chapter. Jesus asks Peter, who do you all say that I am? And you know what Peter says? You're the Christ, the Son of God. And you know what Jesus says to Peter? This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. This was revealed to you by my Father. It's right after this you got to have the new heart. And the only person to give the new heart is the Father. And here's a beautiful thing in Mark. This is the divine irony. Guess whose heart looks more like the heart that the Father is given in the passage? It's not the disciples arguing over bread. It's actually the poor Gentiles who are following Jesus into the desolate place, who have been with him for three days, who have forgotten about time, and who have forgotten about food. Now, what is that? They're feasting on Jesus. They're following him. I'm going to go three days into the wilderness, but as long as you're out here with me, I'm good. That's the indication that the new heart is coming, is that there is this appetite and desire to be near and with Jesus. And the irony of it is you don't see it in the disciples yet. But it's a coming. It is a coming, right? And you see Jesus in this passage. He is doing what the disciples ought to. All right, knuckleheads, if y'all not going to give me your bread, I'm going to ask you for your bread. I'm going to take your bread. I'm going to multiply it, and I'm going to feed my people anyway. 
He is being a better disciple than the disciples. And you know why that's important? Because people like you, we make terrible disciples. And me. We blow it. And here is what we have in Jesus. We have an excellent, beautiful, 100% always faithful disciple who would then go to a cross and pay for our sins. And that's what's happening. He will not let their ignorance get in the way of him being obedient even until death. And then once that heart is fixed upon him, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will come. And the Holy Spirit has a threefold ministry. And one of the first things the Holy Spirit does is the ministry of replacing He will take what the Father starts and what the Son earns, and he will take that heart that is fixed upon Jesus, and he will replace it, and he will do a heart transplant on you, and he does not have to crack your your rib cage to do it. He says, I'll replace it. And once he replaces it, guess what else he will do? He will have a ministry of remembrance in your heart. Did you catch what Jesus says about the Holy Spirit in John 14? If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. You will know him. He will dwell in you and be with you. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance. All that I have said to you. You see what's happening? What is the Holy Spirit going to do? What is he doing in our lives, believers? He is making us people who remember truth. And guess what else he's going to do? He's not just giving us the ministry of remembrance. He's doing it so that he can reproduce the work of Christ in your life. He's causing us to remember so that we can keep, so that we can obey. And don't we see this in the disciples? You fast forward to the book of Acts. You got this food crises. You got Jewish widows and you have Gentile widows. Did Jesus just not go into Jewish territory and do a feeding? Is he not now in Gentile territory doing a feeding? And what happens in Acts? You get this collision. The Jewish widows are getting their food. Who's being overlooked? The Gentiles. And you know what the disciples say? It's not right that we do this. It's not right that both groups are not getting fed. It's not right for us to wait tables and stop preaching the gospel. And so right there you get this beautiful showing up of the Spirit where these same men who were forgetful, they get it together in the book of Acts. And they get it right. And this Peter, who is cowardly, that man, that people are coming up to Peter. They want to they get in his shadow to be healed, right? Somebody comes to Jesus. He is begging. Peter says, you know what? I don't have no money. No silver, no gold. But what I do have is Jesus. And by his authority, I say, rise and get up. You're like, what? How did y'all change? What changed? It's the Holy Spirit. And believers, he is yours. He is there to help you. And every time that heart of ours wants to get hard, 
He is there to make us off again. And every time our minds want to forget, he is right there to put it in front of us. And every time we want to be selfish and, and caught up in our sin, in ourselves, he is there beautifully and graciously. No, baby, this is not what God has for you. I'm here and you will be conformed to the image of Jesus. Think about the vows our new members just made. They made a vow that they are sinners. They made a vow that there is no salvation other than Christ Jesus himself. And what was the third vow? Do you endeavor by the power of the Holy Spirit to live lives that adorns the gospel? This is not just get yourself together and go do it. This is you can't do it. You're going to blow it. But by God's grace, Jesus hasn't. And he who saved you will give you his spirit and his spirit will enable you to live. So how do we jog our memories, Redeemer? One way is the word. How do we jog our memories? Get a dry erase marker and write it on your mirror. I am loved and forgiven and known. And Jesus wants to use me to bless others. Get you some Ebenezer's. What, what's an Ebenezer, right? I went on a, a men's retreat once and on the way before we left, some of the guys says, hey, you got to, before you leave, you got to find an Ebenezer. I was like, what are you talking about? You got to find something out here that allows you to remember what happened out here. And that weekend, it was a rough time. I was struggling with, does the father really love me? Is he there? And in God's providence, somebody brought me a cigar and the label on the cigar was my father. I kid you not. It was a, that's the brand of the cigar. And so I'm sitting up here like, man, I don't want to take no rock. I don't want no pine cone, right? And I'm looking, ah, oh, my father, right? I got that label right there in my room right now. And whenever I see it, it's a reminder. I'm your father. You're mine now and forever. You need other people to speak this truth over you. We need the table Jesus says, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance. I want you to remember. And the Holy Spirit will take all of that and apply it. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we pray that as we turn our hearts to the table, that you would indeed bless it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.